0: Alrighty, why don't you guys go ahead and find your spots this morning. Benjamin, if there's some reason you can't hear me, I'll just look for your hand to wave and I, I don't know, shout louder or something, okay? Jeremy? I want to read a passage for you just this morning as we start from Romans chapter 11. Verses 33 through 36. Reads like this, Oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who is known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things... To him be glory forever. Amen. It's going to be a long sermon. <laughs> I don't have a timer. That's your warning. Um, this week uh, marked the first time that I can remember in being a pastor where I preached a full sermon to an empty room, of course. And uh, yesterday I texted Bradley, or I think I called him, and I said, Trash it. Um, and then delete that trash bin. <laughs> um, one of my greatest fears when I prepare to preach is that too much of rich will creep in. That's a danger. I think every pastor, every preacher needs to be cautious about. And uh, I was talking to Laura about this, and that's a big concern of mine, especially in a time where there's lots of emotion and lots of stress and um, just pressure that's not typical. And so um, as I share it through my heart, over and over. She's like, just tell people that. So I said, okay. Okay, I think I'm just going to start today just by being totally honest with you. I'm going to bare my heart and show you kind of where I've been with some stuff recently. And as my brothers and sisters ask you to hear and, and uh, hopefully it'll be a service to you and help for you. The elders at our church have a WhatsApp messaging group that we utilize to stay in touch with one another, talk about church things, and uh, oftentimes we just go, off, go, uh, go after doctrine. We just do that pretty often. Recently, I just dumped uh, a pile of thoughts uh, in that chat group. And I looked back at those last night and decided to paste those into the intro in the sermon to share with you a little bit of where I am. So I'm just going to give a little bit of the unmitigated Rich's heart with some of this stuff, okay? I wrote this. I'll preface my thoughts that might take a while to write out by saying this. I think that God has designed me to be a leader and a pastor especially especially to the gun-toting, freedom-loving, cantankerous, conservative types, because I am one. I am angry. Angry at the panic. Angry at the misinformation. Frustrated that over the last few years... I, like many Americans, have lost almost all trust in our media and our politicians. I don't believe any of them. Especially in an election year where if President Trump wants any chance to maintain his office, he has to capitulate to every whim of the alarmists who are desperate to grasp at anything that might make it look like they are doing real adult work in Washington. I am frustrated that I know nothing medically about pandemics. And yet I trust no one with such important information. I feel like I'm a prisoner to the information police and not even in a hyper-conspiratorial way. I have read so many conflicting numbers and reports and common sense tells me that there's no way that those numbers can be genuinely accurate. And I'm not even saying that people are intentionally misleading with the numbers, just inaccurate. I'm angry that people have gone online to shame my wife for attending church on Sunday, or for organizing a simple worship gathering with Christians in the park. I am super angry that those very same people think that abortion is a healthcare issue, and all of a sudden they care about the maybe 3% of people that might possibly contract this virus while they celebrate the slaughter of innocent unborn babies. I'm angry that I've had to talk with and encourage another pastor friend for having 40 people in his service on Sunday because these social shamers are coming after him but maybe the thing I am most angry about is that I'm angry. I want to be a godly leader for our people and for my family and just to honor God. I want to leverage this frustrating situation to shine light on the gospel, but I'm too busy feeling angry. I want to honor our government leaders and eagerly submit to their recommendations. Because I think that would make God happy. I highly value our corporate gatherings and am angry at the churches who are more concerned about losing tithes than they are about not sharing communion. In memory of their crucified Savior. I wish I could lead out of this better, but I'm not there yet. Maybe this is step one or even steps one through four or something, but for the gun-toting, freedom-loving, cantankers, conservative, I understand what you're feeling, brothers and sisters, I really do. That was written Monday, March 16th, the day that the cease and desist orders went into pl- place that prohibited Christians from gathering together and I've regretted the decision to cancel services ever since. I'm going to speak for myself, and this is not for the elders. The elders get, come together on these decisions, and they can answer for themselves. We, we were in unison in our decisions that we made. But, but as for my heart in this, I've had, a, I've had a hard time with the cancellation of Christian gathering for one major reason. I know and i am well aware that some of you have Bible-founded convictions about Christian gathering. And I've been deeply troubled that the decisions that I was a part of making made it impossible for you to act upon that conviction with your local church. What makes it worse is at the end of the day, I'm just not sure if we made the right decision or not. And if I have wronged you, I hope you will forgive me. And I hope that doesn't sound like a false apology at all. I ache to serve you. I wish you knew how much that was true. So this morning, I hope to answer just one question. What should the church look like during times of crisis? Make no mistake about it, we are in times of crisis. Great crisis. In fact, more than one, as far as I can tell. The real crisis, as I suspect many of you have already figured out, is not a virus. We endure far deadlier things than this virus on a daily basis, but there certainly are crises that we're dealing with right now. As far as I can tell, these are some of the crises that I've observed. First is widespread fear. Now the world is always afraid, I'm not talking about the world, I'm talking about Christians. Christians exhibiting widespread fear. Hebrews 2 says that only through Christ are we delivered from the lifelong slavery of the fear of death. When large numbers of Christians begin to fear the things of the world, we have a crisis on our hands. Remember the lesson that Hebrews four points to? We're in the book of Hebrews for, for a long time already at this point, point. and when we were in Hebrews four, we saw uh, three and four, that there was a continual reference back to a time in Israelite history where because of their fear of the world, they did not do what God commanded them to do. Isaiah 43, one through two was written to the people of Israel. It says this fear not for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters I will be with you and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. I think about for Christians, what is the worst thing that can happen to us? You die and go to be with Jesus. John 14, 27, Jesus reiterates this Old Testament command to not fear. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What do you think it does to our Christian witness when we fear? It'd be like when I'm having a picnic with my kids and a wasp lands on my arm. If I calmly... Just wave it away or let it go. We teach the kids that we don't have to fear these things. If I freak out and jump out and panic, how do you think they're going to respond? Our Bible tells us all the time how important it is for us to not be anxious, not be afraid, to overcome worry. And This is, this is a gentle, loving rebuke from the Bible to us. And it's so often listed in our word that we know that we should expect that we're going to have to deal with that. That it's going to be a common battle for us. Widespread Christian fear is certainly a global crisis right now. Another global crisis is government overreach. The church has a responsibility to what's called prophetic criticism, so of course we must talk about things like government, politics, ethics, education, money. How can we not? Government is not our savior. Government is a good gift from our savior that is intended for our good. But just like any authority, it can be abused, whether or not it is run by Christians or atheists. Seeing this does not require that you think conspiracy. Even if our leaders have our best interest in mind, literally, even if, even if all of the leaders making decisions are genuinely wanting to make the best decisions that they can for us, they can be very, very wrong. And they can make decisions that do more harm than good. But here is why government overreach, I believe, has become a crisis. As American Christians, we have been on a 200 year reprieve from the kind of persecution that is common, typical, expected for believers in this age. This day will not last. Rulers over this land will eventually, eventually take aim at the church. It is utterly inevitable. And given our form of government, systematized persecution will almost certainly come hidden inside the Trojan horse of public benefit. Safety, security, peace is the way that it will certainly happen. Now quick note, God will certainly use that persecution for our good and for the good of the elect. It will not in any way stall the advance of his church in this kingdom building age. But I don't want to have any part in ushering that persecution in. Make no mistake about it, the blood of saints will be spilled, and if it is not ours, it'll be the blood of our children and our grandchildren, and I don't want one drop of it on my hands. And this is one reason that, personally, I could not support these current restrictions. Ever-growing government overreach is far worse of a crisis than COVID-19. God never intended for government to prohibit Christians from worshiping. You can't find that in the Bible. Yes, even Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 do not give governing authorities the right to tell Christians how they ought to worship or not. I'm eagerly looking forward to a sermon series we planned long before this came about called God and Government. We're doing this year. Hope to unpack some of these things to the benefit of those who listen. You cannot love your neighbor and be indifferent to tyranny. And and listen, listen to this, because you might be hearing buzzwords. Even if you don't think that our government is yet susceptible to the charge of tyranny, any steps that our government takes in that direction are not good. And apathy would be the wrong response. Third crisis, religious equalization. Religious equalization. I've heard it said recently that some people find it a bit heartwarming that all religions right now look the same. We're basically worshiping the same. Our differences have been minimized. That means in the eyes of the world, the irreligious people in the world, all faiths are doing the same thing right now to many of their eyes. Could it possibly be true that it is heartwarming and good for all religious people to be worshiping in a similar manner? Not unless we're all worshiping the same God. Should it not bother us when our worship practices begin to look exactly like all those other false religions? I was reminded by a story this week of a friend of mine who in ministry and missions took regular trips to Southeast Asia to be an encouragement to building up the believers there and taking part in the evangelistic efforts. He told me about a missionary friend that was doing ministry in a country that had very little gospel presence. Shortly after arriving in country he began to look for a home that was big enough not only for his own family but also to become their church gathering space. Not long after he began the search he found that he could o- what he could only describe as the perfect location. It was a very large house with a big basement that was spacious enough to accommodate a small church. It was not right in the middle of town, but right on the edge of town, which meant that it was near enough for everyone to get to it, but not so central to provoke undesired scrutiny from local authorities. And perhaps the most appealing, albeit unexpected, factor was that it was listed for far less money than they had expected. So, he bought the home. Soon after moving in, strange things started happening. In the night, strange voices could be heard shouting from vacant rooms. Sound minded guests started having panic attacks upon entering the home. On one occasion, the missionary reports having heard instruments that he had stored in the basement begin playing by themselves. He began to ask the locals about the house and when he told them which one it was, they would become pale and say, the demons live there. It had a reputation for being haunted. People would go out of their way to not pass by the home stories emerged of other tenants of the home having sold it and leaving because they couldn't handle what everyone believed to be demonic oppression of the house. In fact, he was told that there had even been other religious leaders in the town who had bought it and tried to inhabit it, but none of them lasted long. He was asked by another missionary friend if he was planning to sell the home. He replied, if I leave now, regardless of what is actually true about the home, the people will believe that our God is just like their gods. Of course I must stay. For the sake of the name of our God, we must show that he alone is true. We worship the one true God. We are not now and never will be like the other false religions in the world. No, no matter how much they might try to look like the Christian faith, There are so many efforts by the world to just try to make us seem like just another one of those religions and non-essential at that. Psalm 96, verse four through five says, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. There is great hope in these times because false gods are crumbling left and right. We ought not fall in line with the religious equalization that is becoming a crisis in our world. We are not like the other false faiths. Another crisis these days is prolonged suffering. Or perhaps the expectation of prolonged suffering. The kind of suffering that will be a result of systematized panic. The ripple effect of our collective reaction to the coronavirus will be far worse and longer lasting than any of the deaths we will see from it. I think almost, I, I don't know many people who've argued this yet. Certainly not convincingly. We are commanded by God to love our neighbor. But what if loving our neighbor means more than just staying inside? Now listen carefully. There certainly are selfish reasons for you to want quarantine to be over. There definitely are selfish reasons. You need to be aware of self-serving motives. But what if loving your neighbor requires that you go and be with the person who needs human interaction? What if it means supporting local businesses getting back on their feet, especially those that are going to be destroyed, put out of business because of this? I've heard it said, and I think it's true that the cure here has become far worse than the disease. Now, Now, here's the point. Christians live in our community that's seeing all these things happen. They're out of our control. But who's going to be there to help serve people six months from now, two years from now, five years from now? The church. Christians have long been the ones who boldly march out onto the minefield to rescue people because we are the only ones who are not slaves to the fear of death. And we have staying power because we will be doing those good things until the return of our Savior. We're going to be picking up pieces of this mess for years to come. Things will get worse. And we're not afraid of things getting worse. But it is certainly another crisis that we expect to see. And another crisis that I've observed is classism, what the Bible calls partiality. What are the long term effects? of telling an entire class of people that they should be deemed non-essential. Who determines who is essential and who is not essential? Yesterday, Laura and I were talking with a neighbor. Didn't mean it in any ill way, I don't think at all. Laura asked, so how's life been going? How's work been going? What's, what's your household been like because of the situation? She says, well, I work in the metal field, medical field, so I'm essential. Can you imagine another time prior to this where saying that would not have felt like a slap in the face to the other person? Now this is a kind lady. I don't think she meant anything ill by it at all. But you know what I mean? What about the single mom of three kids who works as a waitress to put food on the table? How is she and her livelihood and her kids non essential God is not a God of partiality and the church may never approve of classism. I have a concern today of what I've heard called selective compassion. Shouldn't we care about the 0.3% that could die from this? Absolutely. But we should also care about the other 99.7%. And we should do good for them. Seek good for them stand behind and care for and sacrifice for them. As the church, we're going to need to be prepared to reach the non-essentials. We may need to buckle up and find a way to sacrificially love them in ways that we have not yet had to do. We might need to bear the burden of the non-essential underclass of citizens today. We are most certainly facing crisis. So I ask the question again. What should the church look like during times of crisis? Perhaps that answer would be clearer to see if we asked a slightly different question. What is the worst thing that could happen to the Christian church? Let's ask it that way. What is the worst thing that could happen to a Christian church? For those of you who might not have heard this story before, Laura and I are born and raised in the western suburbs of Chicago. We'd always lived there, our families all lived there. We, the uh, first two kids were born there. I served at a gospel preaching, Christ exalting church for seven years there on the pastoral staff. There came a time in the, the last couple of years that we were there that I just had a growing kind of discontent, just everything was not fitting right. I felt God was preparing us for something else and wasn't certain of what it was. There was a period of about six months of time at the very end of that where we just threw it up to the Lord and said, listen, we can't get over this discontentedness, but we believe it's from you, God. That you want us to do something different than what we're doing right now and we're eager to know what that is. Please confirm that certainly over this next six months. And by the time we got to the end of that, God made it incredibly clear to us that we were supposed to move on and find a mission. Told the church there, Explained to them, our heart, not very surprised to hear from others with great excitement. We had hoped that you'd be wanting to do something missionary like this. It was shortly after the time, it was made very clear to us that we were inspecting missionary ministry options all over the world, and particularly the U.S. It became pretty clear to us that we were called to be here amongst our own people doing ministry. You may have heard this part of the story before, but It was basically a friend of a friend who was trying to help us find a a job, said, well, what about Utah? Would you be willing to go there? And it was the first of all the options on the table that we just flat out said, no, not Utah. And as God commonly works, he brought it back to us and placed it heavy on our hearts. (laughs) We went from having no desire for Utah to such an overwhelming burden for the people here that I can only describe that feeling of us needing to come here by by saying that our desire to come here was so strong that I was concerned that if we didn't come here, I would end up in the belly of a whale. That it would be Jonah-like in its intensity of you clearly need to go. That's what it felt like to us. I hadn't had an experience quite like that up until that time. After we committed to moving to Utah and coming here, this was the plan. We had set our heart. We're going to Utah. Rich, what is plan A? Easy. I'm gonna work at the Home Depot in the tool department, and we're gonna become part of the Christian community out there and see people come to faith in Jesus. We're gonna be Christians in Utah. That's what we're doing. That only lasted for a few days before Laura said, no, I think we're gonna plant a church. I said, psh, Never. It was over the course of a couple of months that my study through the scripture, history, and inspecting the state of ministry in Utah that I became thoroughly convicted that the most biblical, practical, and historically founded way to reach a lost region for Christ was by planting gospel preaching, Christ-exalting, word-centered churches. Utah needs healthy churches. And this became the driving force for us. And if I was asked why, Rich, why? Why is it so important that there's more churches out in Utah? Why, why would that be a problem? Here's the reasons I would have given you even before I, I, I internalized them into what would become our mission statement. I would have told you because there are houses there where people are not worshiping God and he deserves worship from those homes. The fact that worship of God is not happening is not okay Second, there are Christians there who are starved for fellowship, starved for community. What if Christians from outside of the state move in and there's so few believers there, they don't find the connection and they dry up. And there are many lost people out there that need to be reached. Now, Some might say, well, Rich, there was already 10 churches there. Didn't you know there's already, there's already a couple churches in that town? You know, it was Jesus who said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In other words, Jesus doesn't go, don't worry, 10 are there, move on. He was like, you're darn right, we need more laborers. You know, the first person who lived in Utah that I spoke with when we were in the process of moving on out here was Paul Roby, the pastor of South Mountain Community Church. And in various conversations with him trying to get the lay of the land in Utah, at one point I just asked, like, why do you think Christians need to move out to Utah? And he said, it's really obvious. We need more laborers for the harvest field. Later, I would call him and say, hey, I, th- I think we're coming to Utah. and I-, I think we're planting a church. If you were to tell us where a church should be planted in your estimation by having the lay of the land out here in this area, where do you think that you would point me to plant a church? And he said, daybreak South Jordan. And I said, Paul you're like one of the biggest churches in the county don't you already have a church there he goes yes but we need more we need more churches right there (laughs) the worst thing that could happen for the church is for it to stop worshiping God stop building up believers and to stop fulfilling the great commission we want more churches that are doing that we are not what the world wants us to be. Jesus said in John 15, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know the word for church in the New Testament, ecclesia. That's actually a merging of two words in Greek, the prefix of which means to, means out of and the root word means to call. The church is literally the called out ones. Those who come out of something to assemble together. Can you handle being the hated ones? You know, Jesus tells us to count the cost. In Matthew ten twenty one through 22, he says, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Do you know why this is so important in a time like this to be reminded by that? Because we're gonna have every worldly, fleshly impulse to want to please what other people think. To capitulate to and to accommodate what the world wants the church to look like. It just wants us to be another social club and social clubs cancel during times of pandemic. Social clubs are under the authority of the government in such a way the government can tell them exactly how they can and cannot operate, at least in the thinking of many people. We are not what the world wants us to be. We are what Jesus has commanded for us to be. We ought not sound like the world, look like the world, smell like the world. Christians have always been the oddballs. We don't fit the mold. We're strangers in this land. We don't belong. Therefore, we cannot take our cues from the world in order to determine what a church is and what a church should be doing. We must not try to please the world. I know that there are Christians right now. And I I see them. I hear them. I'm very well aware who say, so what should we be doing right now as a church? Let's ask the world what they would like to see us do, and then do that. And there are many versions of this. But the Christian church is not run by anyone other than Jesus. The Christian church is built on and built by Jesus. The church was founded by Jesus, purchased by the blood of Jesus, for the glory of Jesus, has as its head, Jesus, is being loved and interceded for and built up by Jesus and will not fail but will grow until Jesus' return. The church of God does not conform to the world. We bring all that is worldly under the lordship of Jesus. Here's why it's so important to establish these things. How many of you guys in, in, in this, these moments where you, you're stuck at home, you don't have the normal work hours you might have, have tried to tackle a big cleanup project? Not as many of you as, as you probably would have thought. But if you were to tackle the messy garage or the messy shed or the messy basement, you'd first have to get all the junk out of it. You'd have to order a dumpster and throw that garbage out before you could even begin to deal with the mess that's in the garage, the shed, the closet. Our thinking might be like that in order for us to rightly consider what the church ought to look like, what we ought to be doing, is God, how do you want us to make sure we're organized? First, get the junk out. Make it go. Is it not telling that as the people of God came out of the land of slavery and into the land of promise, they were given very strict rules to not do what the world does? You're gonna look totally different. God even gave them the kind of clothes to wear, the kind of way they plant their their crops. You're going to look totally different from them. I don't want you to look like them. You're to be the ones called out of all of that. As Christians, we have to start by removing the wrong thinking. I want a few points of application for what I think that this means practically for us at the Mission Church. Number one no more prohibiting of our gathering. If your conscience can handle it, if you share the conviction that I have that we must gather, then do so. It's on our website, it's been on Facebook at some point, Uh, don't gather, we're we're, we're canceling service, we're doing all that. If your conscience convicts you to gather, you'll not hear from me prohibition from doing so. Now that doesn't mean we don't get creative. We may have to get creative. We may try to live in this place of tension between what the government says and an eager desire to try to honor that. We may try to demonstrate love for neighbors and even if they're confused or just straight up wrong about the situation, we may get really creative. Christians are creative people. We can solve these problems. We may meet outside. We may have to go into smaller groups in other areas. We may have to do all kinds of crazy things in order to make gathering work. But if you have that conviction, I don't feel that I have the authority biblically to ask you to not act upon it. That's the first, no more prohibiting of gathering. Number two, we must, we must withhold judgment from Christians who disagree with us. This has been... My clarion call since the very first thing I said after this started. There are going to be believers who think that it is the right thing to do. They have a conscience reason why they're going to stay home for a season. Government, they, they they just have a reason. They they think that that's the best decision to make. Some might think that the health concern is grave enough that they want to love their neighbor well. And stay. Amen. We must not judge fellow Christians who disagree with us in that. Really, really. For those who are going to be at home and watching this, even if you sense rage and fury, yeah, probably. But you need to know that we are behind you in not feeling judgment for those who disagree on how we ought to react to a very unique time. But that also means that it is important for believers to not be counted amongst those who are crying out for greater control. In other words, if you stand in the position in which you want people to judge Christians for gathering, that would be you foisting your convictions on others and I would ask you to not do that. Withhold judgments for Christians who disagree. You feel convicted to stay in? Stay in. You feel convicted to go out? Go out. Third application. Third application. Care for one another. Galatians 6.10 says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. There may be people in our church who are hurting that we don't don't know about. Somehow it's evaded us. We need to know about that. We need to know who you are. I'm asking for you all to leverage your connection points with the people you know. The way, you have neighbors that are kind of close to you who go to this church. You, you are in connection with them in small group of Bible study. You already have WhatsApp, Zoom, uh, messaging, calling. A hundred different ways you may be in contact. I'm asking you, please, please, leverage those things. Leverage those technologies in order to make sure that we're meeting the needs of fellow believers. No believer should feel alone right now in this. I think our church has done a really good job of this and what I've observed so far. I want to I stir you up by way of reminder to continue to do that, continue to do that. Fourth application, we need to pray. We need to pray, we need to pray. We need to pray apart and we need to pray together as a church. I will be holding a prayer meeting at our church building for those who are able to attend at 9 a.m. on Tuesday mornings right here. We may add more of those meetings and different time slots if that would work for certain people. But I can't in good conscience not gather and pray. It's the kind of thing that I felt convicted about that we should have been doing more formally prior to this. It's been like a slap in the face to me, like, Duh. 9 a.m. Tuesday mornings, I'll be here. If, you, if your conscience convicts you and you prefer to be outside, we'll do it outside. If you need to stay six feet away, if you need to wear a mask, do that. We, we, can, we can pray together with all of that. We need to pray for wisdom and guidance on what to do. We need to pray for the good of our nation. We need to pray for the judgment on wicked leaders and that they would repent and turn in faith to Jesus. It's the only hope. We need to pray, we need to pray that the rebelliousness in our hearts would be suppressed and and overcome and overwhelmed by the good of Jesus, by the grace of our God, that we would not be motivated by anything other than godly motivations. Please pray that for me. We need to pray that the gospel will go out into our nation right now, that God will use this exact moment to grow his kingdom. And fifth, the fifth application, prioritize personal holiness. Prioritize personal holiness. If you've developed the habit of neglecting prayer and time in the Bible in your life, there's no more time for excuses. A local church cannot grow in its effectiveness beyond the personal holiness of its members. Not because God cannot act, but because the way that Jesus has instructed his church to act would be that by being holy, set apart, distinct, we would let our light shine before men that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven prioritize personal holiness. Oh my goodness, I have to imagine that many of you right now in your hearts are going, I, I, I know exactly what you're meaning in my life. It may be different for each of you, but there are sin issues in our life we need to tackle, we need to deal with. We need to repent of and go to the Lord. in. There are disciplines that you need to grow and develop in in this time. This is a time to do it. No more prohibiting gathering. Withhold judgment from Christians who disagree with you. Care for one another. Pray together as a church. Prioritize personal holiness. If there's something else that struck your conscience as something you think would be helpful for, for you, for the, for the church at large, please talk to me right after this. I'm eager for our body collectively to be doing these things. That we may honor God, build up one another, and we may reach the lost. I want to pray right now in our closing and this is what I want to pray I want to say this out loud very clearly we need clear guidance and wisdom from God on how to move forward and when we get to times that seem like they evade any particular biblical category that deals with it we need to be corrected God has not forgotten to insert how Christians should deal with difficult times like these we have them in the word. The angels aren't rushing into the throne room of heaven and saying, we should add a 67th book. What a perfect time. Remember that forgotten book about how to deal with crises? The whole Bible is written during times of crisis. This is nothing unique. 1 Peter chapter four. Let me read this to you. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are good to us. We have more blessing than we could possibly deserve. Father, help us to take stock of all the good that you've done in our lives that we may quickly and primarily be reminded by those good things. Let us come to you in this moment with requests, that come on the back of the praises and thanksgiving we've already given you. Lord, let us not be selfish in our motivations. God, let us think about you first, others second and self last right now. Help us to be quick to honor what your word says. Help us to be slow to judge our fellow believers. Lord, if the anger and frustration that we feel is being used by you in order to expose error and sin and wrong thinking in our lives, then let it be so. But Lord, if it is personally, rebelliously, wrongly, sinfully motivated, slay it dead. Lord, we are in a really awkward time for believers right now. We need, we need a kind of clarity and help right now that only you can give. So Father, I ask that you would do that. Lord, help me, help the elders at our church to think rightly about these things, to have, have peace in our hearts about the decisions that we make. Father, help for me personally to to be slow to move forward without clear, clear teaching, Bible-founded truth that we can build upon. Father, we ask that you would use the Mission Church right now to bring great benefit to our county. Father, we know that people are looking to all sorts of false gods for comfort. Lord, show yourself to be true. Use the Mission Church to do that. Father, we pray for the brothers and sisters in Christ around this valley who are trying to be creative and meeting together and and, uh, trying to be creative and reaching their neighbors and to worship you. Lord, help them grow those churches. Multiply their effectiveness. Father, there are non-believers all over the place uh, who are thinking through death and thinking through stability and thinking through a whole host of different fears right now in ways that they don't typically do. Lord, I pray that you would shake people awake with this. Help us to be right there. Help us to proclaim truth to a dying world. And Lord, bring great honor and glory to yourself as we praise you, as we praise your son. And we need your help, of course, even to do that. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time of gathering. We pray this in Jesus' good and holy name. Amen.